Hello and welcome to Dragon Bites, the paediatric podcast aimed at paediatric trainees and anyone interested in child health. I'm Asim, I'm one of the paediatric trainees here in Wales and I'm one of the presenters for Dragon Bites. I wanted to start off just by apologising for the long gap between our last episode and this one. That's largely my fault, I've been really busy in the clinical academic world, but I'm back with it now. So let's carry on with the episode we left off last time. We're currently in the middle of our COVID series, and last time we had an episode where one of our Dragon Bites hosts, Dr. Tom Cromarty, was joined by Dr. Liz Whitaker, a consultant in infectious diseases and immunology, and they were discussing together long COVID. So if you haven't listened to that episode, I strongly recommend going back to have a listen to that now. Anyway, let's get started. Interesting. Um, I don't want to kind of keep moving back and forth, but something you said earlier was interesting about those uh, anti-interferon um, yeah. antibodies. Have you have, probably haven't had long enough to figure out if those things those come and then and then go away, or, or have you got any inclination of you know the the, the numbers in the blood and, and what happens to them over time? So we haven't measured them in this cohort, although we are recruiting children, and young people with long COVID. That's predominantly been looked at in severe COVID pneumonia. And it's actually um, something I don't know the answer to. I think um, Vanessa Sanchez-Shimes, who's a, one of the scientists I work with at Imperial College, this is her area of expertise. She worked on interferon before the pandemic. So she's very well placed to look at it. And I can certainly, I, but I don't know that we have data over time looking at that. Like many autoimmune conditions, it may be that you need to try and reset the immune system a little mm. bit to make them go away. And I think that's where um, some of the um, adult intervention studies, so there is a randomized trial of comparing colchicine to no treatment in patients. We've been trying to get children, young people onto that study because colchicine um, is, is quite a safe medicine. I'd be quite happy to suggest that that would be a, a reasonable thing. But because our numbers are so low, um, it's quite, you know, they're quite keen to get adult data and then extrapolate. We always mm. have to advocate for children young people to be part of any research this is no different to that um, a lot of parents I think um, or lots of people in the community feel that we should be giving steroids um, or prednisolone to this cohort um, because they've been so effective in PIMS um, but we're really reluctant to do that because using the things we can measure so the CRP and an ESR or other measures of inflammation there is no me- measurable inflammation in the blood tests that we do. And there is no measurable inflammation in the imaging and the echoes that we do. And so giving steroids, which are not without side effects, mm. feels like an unsafe thing to do until we have further information. Um, and that's why there is a bit of urgency behind trying to get the research in kids as well as adults so that we can start to think about intervention and treatment. Mm. And uh, you mentioned there were no specific differences between kind of predicting how how bad it was going to be what about um a kind of va- vaccinated in individuals and non-vaccinated individuals i know it's a bit of contentious issue but um do we notice a difference between groups who have and haven't been vaccinated wh- whether it's extrapolated from adults or specifically in children um, so this, the, the vaccine data is quite interesting um in children not enough children have been vaccinated to be able to look at that yet mm. Okay, but in adults, um, because 
Although vaccines protect against severe disease and hospitalization, mm -hmm. rather than decreasing infection, they do decrease a little bit of infection and transmission. Um, and so some studies have shown a decrease in long COVID, but that's probably related to the decrease in infection, if that makes sense. Mm. Um, and other studies have actually um, suggested that patients um, get worse with vaccination. So there's so for some patients, um, when they received the vaccine, they had a flare of their symptoms. I think that if it was an immune condition, that may not be surprising because you promote a bigger mm. immune response. Um, however, um, patients who have been vaccinated and then got COVID have still gone on to develop long COVID. So we know that vaccination isn't completely protective. When it comes to children, um, not enough children have been vaccinated in order to see a protective effect or even a worsening. But we have been encouraging um, children and young people who uh, to take the vaccine, the adolescent group. Um, and they certainly they and their families are really keen to be vaccinated to try and limit the possibility of having a further episode of SARS-CoV-2 infection, which might exacerbate things. And in this small group of patients who have had COVID, then long COVID, and then a vaccine, there is no reported difference or change in their symptoms. But the numbers are small. Mm. And so I think it's really, we'd have to be very cautious about saying anything mm. in particular. We've spoken very broadly about um, about long COVID generally, but I was hoping, what are the most common, you know, for a, someone working in acute paediatrics, um, what are the most common things that we should be looking out for um, yeah. with, re with regard to this and, you know, to, to get our alarm bells ringing and thinking about then coming on to our next topic of treatments later on? Yeah, so really good questions. I think there are three main clusters. Um, so anosmia is a really good giveaway, to be honest. And then there's the group that are probably the most predominant which is headaches brain fog fatigue and they often have some dizziness and breathlessness alongside it and that's we think related to autonomic dysfunction which i haven't mentioned but pots is really common in this cohort um then we have that group of patients who've got the kind of um, persistent tummy pain may have uh, some diarrhea they may have appetite loss because of the tummy pain a bit of weight loss and sometimes a urticaria and to be honest they tend to be a little bit younger so I would say they're the kind of eight to twelve year olds that would be a second cluster um, and then the third group of children are um, just very classic chronic fatigue myalgia um, pain they can like really experiencing pain in their limbs that makes them reluctant to move alongside the fatigue and headaches and the thing though that we say to everyone is that it's more like we, we have to rule out other conditions and I'm really happy to mm. share um, the pack that we've prepared for London which has common mm. symptoms and investigations to do as well as simple treatments to trial for those symptoms because and the most important thing that we don't want to miss is pericarditis, myocarditis and clots. And so we ask everyone to kind of do an ECG and a one minute sit to stand test to look for a, a tachycardia or um, hypoxia. Or if they've got the capacity to do a six minute walk test, again, looking at changes in heart rate and saturations are really important because those are the pickups for abnormalities. And we've only had a couple of kind of older teens who've had uh, desaturations but then we've gone on to do more in, in intensive investigations to make sure we're not missing something that requires anticoagulation for example um but the key thing really actually is the impact on function um so uh i think our young people have been 
really had a disservice throughout the pandemic in terms of missing school. And we know there's a massive issue with mental health. Um, and so regardless of whether we can tell you exactly what it is that causes their symptoms, if they're not able to get to school, then they quite urgently need to be picked up. Um, and across the UK, the referral pathways are either um, to general paediatrician for onward referral, or if you're 16, 17 or 18, you can go directly through the GP to the long COVID services. Um, and so we would encourage people um, to try and refer on rapidly once they're happy they haven't missed an underlying condition. Okay, uh, yeah, so lots of those uh, seem common practice to me, doing ECGs, um, yeah. doing your lying and standing blood pressure and heart rate for POTS. Um, that, that six-minute walk test, is that something that we should be doing if we can? Or I think a one-minute sit-stand is really feasible in clinic because you can yeah. do it while you're having a chat with the parents and you just yeah. need a, a portable SATS probe. So that's what I do in my clinic. The six-minute walk test is slightly more complicated and involved. If you've got a healthcare assistant who can walk them up and down the corridor, then that's feasible. Actually, if we're honest, the really debilitated young people can't walk for six minutes. It's one of the things that we kind of initially said they should all have. It, and then we realized that if you were extremely fatigued and myalgic, that's kind of like torture. Let's make it really, really. So we don't do it so often, but the physios do it as part of their assessment. So I think if you've got borderline patients where you're not sure and they were fine in the one minute sit to stand, but their symptoms are a bit alarming, it's quite a good test to just see how fatigable they are and things like that and we have an SOP that we're very happy to share it's actually very common sense I'm pretty sure most pediatricians would cope with doing it mm. okay fab um the other thing that was coming to my mind when you were saying that was at what point I know um there's probably a, again a spectrum of this but at what point how many weeks after should we be thinking um I think did you mention 12 weeks earlier yeah. so the diagnosis is strictly speaking is kind of the international world health organization nice everybody is 12 weeks because actually persistent symptoms are relatively common in the first month or so and so they do tend to get better so if they're improving um and you're kind of around eight weeks it's reasonable to say to the family i'll see you in a month and see how you're doing um however we have said within the service, because we recognize early intervention is key, that if they're really not well and they're not getting out of bed, they're not going to school, we will be happy to see them sooner rather than leaving them languishing just for the sake of a number. But strictly speaking, it's 12 weeks. Yeah. Right. Um, I think we're going to move on to Asim and talk about some treatments. Yeah. Um, so I, I, um, we can just start with a relatively straightforward question then. And you did mention some some testing happening with with, with culture scene a bit, but are there any specific treatments for um, long COVID at the moment? Uh, no, not in children and young people. So we are most of what we do is around symptom management. Um, and that can be simple things like um, on Dancitron for nausea, um, really giving good advice about pots and appropriate um, stockings, TED stockings that are the right size and the right fit, um, drinking fluid and salt. Um, for tummy pain, we have been using H1 and H2 antagonism. So a combination of famotidine and cetirizine seems to, we give a trial for kind of three to four weeks. And if it doesn't work, we stop, but actually can be quite effective for some patients. And there is, sorry, one of the theories I didn't mention is that there's mast cell destabilization, which is why that sometimes works for patients. Um, we use amitriptyline for headaches and for pain that's not settling. We use migraine relief for pain for headaches that are migraine related um, and really all those kind of really common sense, simple measures. Um, 
a lot of patients, particularly with anosmia or tummy pain, have really uh, have lost weight and have difficulties with their diet. So we we really get our dietitians involved either with supplements or to think about ways to approach food. And the occupational therapists are amazing at coming up with workarounds for people who are struggling. So it's a real allied health approach in terms of kind of rehabilitation and symptom management, but nothing specifically because it's long COVID. Um, and that, I think, is a big frustration for families. And they're, the thing, the message I think that we give to families, but also the feedback we've had, is that there is no magic bullet. And being honest about the fact that it takes time and input to get better, um, but that it does get better has been really key for families. And the young people themselves say, having somebody listen to them and acknowledge that this is a diagnosis and and that the symptoms are real is actually a really important first step in starting to get better. And I know that sounds really, I don't know, patronizing is the wrong word, but I think it's really important that these patients are seen and are told that this is a real phenomenon that can improve. Um, and so it is very much about working with the children and their families for whatever works for them. The other thing that's really important, and this is not a specific treatment either, is to make sure that the school are on board and understand um, what a gradual return to school and things like that looks like. And so we've developed information leaflets for school and are happy to have conversations with the welfare officers in school because actually they may not have any other patients who've been this debilitated and things like that. So um, that's been really helpful for some families. Yeah, it must be a learning process for everyone, every service involved with the, with these children. Um, I suppose uh, uh, this is going back to something that Tom was talking about a bit earlier with um, with with the length of time it's taking for these symptoms to resolve. But given that you know these children are getting the acute infections and it could be a while before you get over that initial illness, at what point in time should children and young people be um, you know seeking help from from um, you know, healthcare practitioners about long COVID, at what point should they start asking the question? I think it depends on what they're experiencing. So anybody who's having any breathlessness or chest pain, for example, should absolutely seek urgent medical attention because there may be some people who've got, you know, clotting abnormalities underlying and they should be checked out. For the kind of persistent sore throat, the persistent fatigue, you know, provided they're relatively able to crack on with school and things, then it's reasonable to say it can take four to six weeks for any viral infection to get better. And if it's persisting after that point, popping, you know, getting an appointment to see the GP and going through that process so that they can start um, getting towards a referral is probably a sensible thing to do. If they're missing school and they can't go to school, as I said, then probably that process needs to start a bit sooner. But we do know, you know, in a pre pre covid era it you know if you've got the flu it might take you a bit of time to bounce back that's not a new phenomenon when you've been unwell that's really helpful thank you i think i feel like tom did you have a question for that? yeah i was just wondering um look, not not that it's a similar condition but i've when i see um children come in you know with concussion post-concussion type uh symptoms and the recommendation for them, you know, is to have 48 hours of complete rest and then a graduated return, depending on how that goes. Is, is that a, a similar kind of advice we're giving with regard to these symptoms if they come, uh, you know, early on in that first month? Yeah. Is it a rest approach or, you know, there's, there's other conditions where you actually don't want to do nothing because that can make things worse. What, what's what's yeah. the advice there? 
I think that's a really, I think it's a really good question about balance because um, lying in bed and doing nothing all day is not the answer. However, rushing out, going to school, doing a football match, going to swim training, and then crashing for two days is also a bit of a disaster. So mm. I think it's um, it's and we struggle a bit more with this with the kind of eight, nine, ten year olds who have no common sense at all, unlike the teenagers who've got a tiny bit, um, <laughs> is to say, actually, you're better off doing little bits of things and choosing things you enjoy and doing those, but taking it easy and gradually reintroducing things um, because there is an absolute one step forward, two steps back with kids who do too much. Um, it's the kind of boom and bust phenomenon that is really well defined from chronic fatigue and we absolutely see in this cohort. Um, and so we very much kind of say, I say it, it's a bit like couch to 5K. I'm not suggesting you go for a run. Think about adding on one extra thing a week until you're back to normal and start lower than you think you can do. So particularly for the really sick ones, we say, don't try and go into school for the full day because you won't be able to go in the following day. You know, and this can be hard for working parents. We do recognize that, but kind of going in for the morning or the afternoon, if that works better with timetables and then just doing a, a week of mornings and then trying to add on a bit more the following week means that you get a better routine. Um, and we also suggest that we don't worry so much about just pure academic education, but say, well, actually, if your favorite class is art, why don't we make sure that you're always in for your art class? Because mm -hmm. then you're getting enjoyment at the time you spend in school and not just feeling like it's all about exams. And that takes some of the pressure off and then you gradually build back up to it. So I think um, it's really important, but we do encourage people to keep moving a little bit um, to not stay in bed all day. The problem is, particularly with POT syndrome symptoms, if you spend a long time lying down, it takes a lot longer to get back up into standing and sitting. So kind of trying to avoid that is a good idea. Great. Um, I think we're going to come on to some resources later on, but just specifically, as you've mentioned those two then, a graduated return to school. Is there a kind of playbook for that? I know, I know we've kind of anecdotally talked about one there. But is there a, a resource for yeah. um, that? So, so in our London service, for we've got a pan-London post-COVID service, we've developed, um, we got funding from NHS England quite early on, and we've developed a whole series of leaflets. Um, so on what is long COVID, what diets, things are good, because lots of people go on very complicated, restrictive diet, and we think that's a bad idea. But some people have found things like vitamin D and coenzyme Q and things like that to be helpful. That's no harm, provided you take them in reasonable amounts. So and a leaflet on diet, a leaflet on exercise, a leaflet on sleep. So the other thing is, if you lie in bed for a lot, you then get into a bad sleep hygiene and you're up all night and sleeping during the day. And then you say you're really tired, but actually really simple, sensible kind of set a set time to get up in the morning measures can really help. So a good leaflet on sleep. Um, we've got one on gradual return to energy and how to do that we've got a school information leaflet and a couple of more that off the top of my head mm. oh tummy pain and how to manage it and things um and we are and have been in the process of putting this on the your covid recovery site so that they're freely available uh, for all of the country and i'm not going to lie i'm extremely frustrated about how complicated process that has been um, but we are happy to share those leaflets with other services and we've been we have given them to other groups around the country the other thing that we've done in london that we're hoping to turn into webinars is we've done group sessions with the children and young people and some facilitators from allied health professionals um, and so we do group sessions on again sleep and return to exercise and so we're making those into webinars uh, without the young people so that they have an anonymity um, and then they will also be available on your COVID recovery and um, hopefully by the summer 
Um, and those can be really useful resources, both for healthcare professionals, as well as the children mm-hmm. and their families, um, to kind of get a feel for what we're talking about. Because it's easy for me to say it, and then you go away and you're like, what did she say? Uh, so we've put it all in my so, so those webinars, um, you'll just retake what the children are saying and, and young people saying, and then what get other people to, to no, say. No, so we said. do the professionals bit of it. Um, okay. So And then the way we've run them is that the professionals do a talking bit about whatever the topic is. And then we don't record the bit at the end, which is the young people talking to each other and to the professionals for things they found helpful and things like that, because that's, you know, yeah. confidential. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it, those resources then, can we, we'll obviously put them on where we have links, we'll put them on. Do you know them off, uh, you know, offhand, the actual URL so that we can signpost? So they're on the, use, if, if, if you want to access them now, they're on the UCLH website yeah. uh, for young people. They will be on Your COVID Recovery, which is the um, Long COVID National website with NHS England but they, you will understand the bureaucracy and due process yeah. that we've had to go through to get them on there. Um, but they should be available as links on the UCLH website. All right, I can share them with you. Fab. And I was just thinking, you know, you know, relative, you said flu symptoms before, post-viral symptoms that have been around for a long, long time. Um, and you said earlier that the information you've had already looks, it's around 11%. Is that, is that what you said? Yeah, from so that the eleven percent is from clock, and it doesn't look that does that includes all kind of that. In, it's probably a slight overstatement. We think okay. if you look at the ONS data and the Zoe app data, um, it's more about one point four percent. Um, but I don't know. This is self-reporting and how you ask the questions. Um, eleven percent of young people probably have some persistent symptoms, and then a much tinier proportion have significant symptoms I think we don't know the exact number but for for context uh, we've seen 130 children in 15 months in our service in London um, and the population of London of children is probably two to three million so it's not a huge proportion who are unwell enough to be referred to a specific service if that makes yeah. sense yeah that makes sense and and do we think that the 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 research and the advanced uh yeah advanced information that we have now is going to help other post-viral um you know syndromes that exist i think that's such an interesting question i mean i think um there are a number you know zika glandular fever from ebv um there's a post ebola syndrome uh, chronic lyme things like this um i would hope that the the legacy of COVID could be an improved service for all children and young people with persistent or medically unexplained symptoms. I think it's been really disappointingly eye-opening for me uh, to see how poor those services are in other parts of the country. Um, so for London, it's been relatively straightforward to build on, on what we have because there's a really good chronic fatigue service and mm. so there was some expertise and we were able to build on that. So we got up and running very quickly. And Bristol similarly has an extraordinary uh, service with Esther Crawley um, as the lead down there but in other parts of the country they've never had a service for these children and young people um, and it's not like nobody else ever experienced these symptoms before so I would be optimistic that one of the things that we could say a, a finally a silver lining of COVID is that we improve the support of care for children and young people who 
develop significant symptoms after other infections um, so that they have better outcomes as well. I mean, we know from chronic fatigue anyway that young people do better than adults and they are much more likely to recover and get back to full function than adults are. Um, so it is really crucial to get that input in at the right time. Excellent. Um, I mean, I know I'm going to be checking out those resources and, and they were for both healthcare professionals and for and for, for children and young people and families. Yeah. Um, any, any other useful resources apart from those ones you've mentioned that you think um, yeah, so Long Covid UK, the charity, which was set up by Sammy McFarland, who um, her daughter and herself both had Long Covid, but it's become kind of the, um, the, the main charity supporting families with Long Covid, has quite a lot of resources on their website as well. Um, I think um, uh, they've worked really hard to support families. And so there's, there's, there's good stuff on there too. Thank you very, very much. Um, thanks for being so honest and, and thanks for giving such um, like practical advice as well. Um, uh, yeah. uh, it's all right. And I just wanted to say thank you to both Dr. Whitaker and to Tom for recording that episode for us. Join us again next week for the last episode of our COVID series, where we'll be joined by President of the Royal College of Paediatrics, Dr. Camilla Kington, and by the uh, Royal College of Paediatric Officer for Wales, Dr. David Tuttle, and they'll be discussing the procedures through which the Royal College came up with health policies during the COVID pandemic. Thank you for listening to Dragon Bites.